I hate when he goes on and on and on like that. (laughs) And he can grow hair and cuts it all off. What is up with that? This is Marty, and I am, uh, I'm an alcoholic, first of all. If you are listening to this by tape, I am standing at the ninth annual Northern Kentucky Rule 62 Roundup at the Cincinnati Airport Hotel, (laughs) which is logical because I landed in Cincinnati Airport, which is in Kentucky. (laughs) And the conference is called Children of Chaos. (laughs) Why? Why? I'm so happy to be here. I I had my last drink of alcohol on February the 8th of 1976. And out of respect to my sponsor, Dick, I won't mention that he's my sponsor. Because he's in the room tonight. That's a tough thing, too, to, to deliver in front of your your sponsor. Because they get together after with you and... Talk about the finer points. You know. <laughs> I remember one time talking in front of my original, the first sponsor I ever had, and, and the, then the second sponsor I had. And I don't change sponsors all the time. Geographically, they they seem to get away on me sometimes. And some of them, unfortunately, have gone to the big meeting. And I mean, the longer you're sober, the harder it is to hang on to these suckers. It's the truth. <laughs> And I was delivering the best way I knew how, and at the back of the room, these cards started coming up. And uh, and they were big, and they spelled bullshit. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like people that swear at the podium, but I needed to share that with you. It could happen to you. And it's, it's really hard to concentrate when they're doing that. I really enjoyed Sheila tonight. She made me cry a lot. Um, I think every father in the world... Dreams of their daughter, loving them like that. You know, no matter how big a mess it was on the way through, to think that it just ends up like that, that you have such deep feelings for one another. That is just, that's the best. It gives us all hope, those of us that have screwed up in parenthood to this point. (laughs) I've got a daughter. I used to say that she was the reason that I knew my life was not going perfectly. (laughs) But she, for some reason, has decided that she's going to be okay. Stop drinking. Smoking that wacky tobacco, merry wonderful, and whatever else she was doing. She got herself a boyfriend in there, living together. I don't know about you. That's still strange to me. I remember she phoned and said, uh, I can't stand the girl I'm living with. Robin hasn't got a place he wants to live. We're moving in together. I said, just a minute. And I handed it to my wife. I said, it's for you. I didn't know what the hell to I honestly didn't know what to do. I said, when she got off the phone, I said, what do you think of that? She said, I think she's more honest than you and I were when we moved in together. That's what I thought. <laughs> but anyway, wow, that was, that was so wonderful. I love to cry in front of people. It's liberating. You know, <laughs> you see all the real tough guys going. <laughs> Not me, man. I'm <laughs> I wail. I wail. It's like, 
I mean, a good AT&T commercial, I'm flat on the floor. Because <laughs> I refuse to stuff stuff anymore. I've been there trying to be whatever that is, and uh didn't work for me. And I really find that, it, you know, it attracts people to you when you're transparent. <laughs> I have people tell me all the time, I can see right through you. No, I'm, I'm, it's a compliment. I guess it is. I'm trying not to be complex. So if you came here tonight to hear a really complex talk, get a tape and run it over in the car. And uh, that's about how complex this is going to get. You know, I hear speaker after speaker stand at these podiums and say that we're asked to talk about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. And that's not true. It's real clear. It says what we were like. What happened, what we are like now. And there's a, you know, that sounds like, oh, yeah, big deal, Marty. So you found something out. <laughs> it is a big deal. It's as big a deal as it gets because what it was like doesn't matter a snip compared to what we were like. I mean, I blamed everybody, everything, and everyone else for everything that was wrong my entire life. And what was wrong was so far inside of me that only you people could reach down. I mean, the absolute professional garbage pickers of the earth. <laughs> A group to which I wanted to be associated almost from birth. You know, please, God, let me be a drunk. And uh, some of you identify, especially the newcomers. Like, Do you guys remember your first AA speaker? Mine was Bob B. from Minneapolis. Bob came with a purse. He was carrying a purse. I guess there's nothing wrong with that, except he said he had Tampax in it. I was so, I was conflicted. Immediately, I'm thinking, I'm out of here. Hey, I don't use Tampex. I'm different than him. You know, I meant. Oh, yeah. Oh, when you're new. Listen, when you're new, you're looking for any little thing, aren't you? And then he said, you know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, everybody tries to be sicker than everyone else. This is amazing. You come here not wanting to identify, and with three months, you could go under a snake wearing a top hat. You know what I'm saying? The stories get worse. And In fact, he said that night that if you sat at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, that you had made love to a zebra. That somebody would say, well, at least the one you had was female. <laughs> oh, I know. Doesn't matter. I haven't got a really bad story. I want you to know that from the start. I mean, I, I've been sober. I mean, figure it out. I think I was 23 years old, sobered up in February, turned 24 in April. Never have had to go back drinking. I know <laughs> that almost sounds like I don't belong here. I go to meeting after meeting. It sounds like, God, I haven't had a relapse yet. I better get out there. <laughs> but you don't have to do that. It's not mandatory, and some people don't get back. This is what I want to share with you from the get-go. Sometimes we die. I remember a young guy phoning me. Vince Clark was his name, and I can say his name because he's dead. Vince said, I'm going out one more time. Can you lend me a hundred bucks? I said, Vince, why would you want to do that? He said, I'm 26. I'm not convinced that I haven't got another drunk in me. Drown in his own vomit. See, this is, I mean, this is what we are like. I mean, we're, we're, we are pigs at the trough of life. I keep wanting to write a book saying everything you need to know about being wealthy, healthy, happy. And you open the front page and it says, don't be a pig. Because everything that's wrong with me and everything that was inside of me at that time was that I just wanted more of everything than you were getting. It didn't matter what. There was no such thing as ever having had enough. you know. And so when they wrote that first step, 1939, these guys publish a book. I'm not even a twinkle 
in my father's eye, and they write a book about me. And they said everything that I needed to know in that first step. They said that I was powerless over alcohol. They didn't say I was powerless over my life. They said that I was powerless over alcohol and that my life had become unmanageable. I really had a lot of trouble with that. I had a lot of trouble with both sides of that proposal because I don't know about you, but from the first drink I ever took to the last drink I took, I was obsessed with the concept of drinking normally, like which is so stupid if you think about that. Because I believe that alcohol abuse is giving alcohol to an Eleanor. They can get that stuff to bubble like Christmas lights. They hold on to it so long. I mean, they just, they have no appreciation of leaving this dimension for the next one. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> they drink and remember where they were. I mean, this must be awful for you. I just kind of <laughs> sad. From the first drink I had to the last drink I had, I was obsessed with the idea of somehow drinking with some grace. And I can't explain that to you. I had my first drink in a bathroom. You know, most of you ended up somewhere tacky. I, I mean, I was drinking Loganberry wine. First time out of the chute. Me and a little buddy. Grade six. Man, did we get loaded. Well, we didn't get loaded. That's not true. He spit his in the toilet. I got loaded. And I quit hanging around with him. That's the truth. You see, if you're alcoholic like I'm alcoholic and you're new in this room tonight, one of the things that you can track to find out if you really suffer from this disorder, look at who you're associating with. Look at your ten closest contacts. If they look like you, you're screwed. <laughs> I'm serious. Oh, yeah. Because they will drink like you. They will think like you. They will become so unconscionably violent or absolutely disconnected from reality that nobody wants to drink with them anymore. That's why you drink with them. And that's why they drink with you. And that only gets worse. You see, I didn't know that. See, when I took that first drink, what am I, 11 years old or something like that, I take that first drink, and what happened to you alcoholics in this room happened to me. Only it happened to me right away. Confusing. You see, alcoholism comes in people. It doesn't come in bottles. And so it moves at different speeds and different bodies. I didn't know that. I didn't know that I was powerless about, with alcohol right from the beginning because I never drank any other way. I mean, I put that Loganberry wine into me. I had a spiritual experience. I had a heavy load when I was 11 years old. Nothing made any sense. I mean, I, mean, I, I remember sitting at a breakfast table watching my mother breathe in and out and thinking, why? <laughs> oh, yeah. Some of you took years and years to become this hateful. I seem to be born with a disposition to hate everything and everybody that breathes. And to think about that. See, that's an important part of it, too. You've got to have thought life. I mean, you've got to be able to to say, huh, a lot. Because you weren't listening to anything anybody was saying. You were, what? <laughs> Every time I ever had the cops picked me up. What? What? You were peeing in public. Huh. Well, you know... See, here's what, another thing is that if you're new here and you're laughing at that, you, that's not funny. <laughs> See, there's a bunch of earth people in the room that don't think that that's funny at all. In fact, they don't understand why we laugh at those things. <laughs> and when you're new, you don't laugh either because you know you're not finished doing it yet. 
right? In fact, I didn't want to love you guys at all because I didn't want to come back. Anyway, I drank that, that Loganberry wine that night. I had a spiritual experience. I transformed from one place to another. Had a change of attitude. I went from somebody who was absolutely terrified of my brother Michael to somebody that was going to pound the living snot out of him as soon as I got my hands on him. That happened to me the first time I drank. First time I drank, I had a motor vehicle accident. I got on my bicycle, rode right into the back of a truck. <laughs> That's true. I was riding faster than any human being had ever ridden on a bicycle before. <laughs> and as I was skinning along the ground, I was thinking, this doesn't hurt. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Why did I drink? I'll tell you why I drank, because I turned into super midget. That's why I drank. <laughs> I went home. I remember standing. I had a knee out of my pants, blood all over me. Now, I was raised in a Christian home. This is a breeding ground for alcoholics. <laughs> They're so stupid. They don't know what's going on. All they're meant to do is forgive you and take you to a higher place. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so my mother opened the door, and there it was. Drunk. You know that. What happened? I said, I had two drinks. <laughs> two. It's like almost, there's only one alcoholic brain in the whole world, and we all get to use it for short periods of time. <laughs> and, and everybody gets the same story. I never had more than two drinks my entire drinking career. <laughs> Were you drinking? I had two <laughs> drinks, and they're hitting me so much harder than they used to. I'm in the bathtub, I throw up, and then I make the next discovery. You know, <laughs> Loganberry wine is pink when it comes up, and it floats on the top of the bathtub. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, like you never did it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm in the We Are Saints crowd. <laughs> that was nasty. But you know what? I, I mean, every every inhibition I had, every fear I had, every every piece of anger I had came to a fine point. I could just describe it this way. This is my English. It's nobody else's. If you don't identify with my story, that's fine. Somebody will tell yours one day. But for me, what happened that night and happened many times after that night was that when I had alcohol in my body, I had a sensation of being all in the same place all at the same time. Never, I never had that sober. It was like sober. Everything was out of bloody control. And yet I could be under my bed barking up hunks of wiener. <laughs> You know, did you ever get that one going away? All you can do is just, jeez, God, I'm drunk. I gotta get out of this one. I gotta get out of it. You know, but in control, beautifully, and like my mind was crystal clear. I mean, if I could get off this floor, I know what I would do next. Never had that sensation sober. Sober, I'm out of control. I'm thinking, oh my God, what's going to happen to me next? Self-centered is not wanting everything for yourself. It's wondering what's going to happen to you next. I see people at these podiums, you know, wondering what everybody's going to think of them. They don't. They don't think of you. You understand what I'm saying? They're wondering what you think of them. Oh, yeah. We haven't got the corner on self-centeredness, but we're way up in the ratings. Uh, you know. So this 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 disorder that I've got this and it's baffling. 
because I have, as the big book describes, a strange mental blank spot. <laughs> Liz will laugh at anything. But anyway, I have this strange <laughs> mental blank spot. That tells me that, exactly like the book says, that the, the problem originates in my mind because I cannot bring into my consciousness with sufficient force the suffering and the humiliation of even a week or a month before, and therefore I am without defense against the first drink. Now, you see, if you're an Al-Anon or an earth person or a visitor or a counselor or whatever you are, that's not going to make a hell of a lot of sense to you. But if you're an alcoholic, you know exactly what I'm talking about because we can sit there knowing the consequences of several thousand attempts, knowing full well that we can't drink that stuff, and we'll still start out thinking, it's going to be different this time. I love Jim in the big book, the guy that had the milk with his sandwich and then the whiskey and the milk. Oh, yeah, I said, I've done that. And I mean, I wasn't a guy that readily identified with the big book. The only part that I found in the big book, probably the first year to which I identified, was the place where it said, we're people who do not normally mix. And I thought, yeah, I drink scotch straight all the time. Maybe I am alcoholic. I'm talking puddles of stupidity. I'm talking about completely numb from the head up. I had no earthly concept what you people talked about. I went to my first meeting. They said, do you want what we have? I thought, what the hell do you have? <laughs> like, I'm 23. You got no hair. You got no teeth. <laughs> you can't drink for the rest of your life. What were the choices again? <laughs> Insanity, death, or this. Holy God. Well, I got to pick one, so I'll take death. I am not coming to these meetings anymore. You understand what I'm saying? I did not know that I was powerless over alcohol. The unmanageability part was starting to sneak up on me because I was always somebody that was going there and then would do one of these. You know, I mean, I would go counter opposite to everything I meant to do. If I told you I was going to stay sober, it was almost a bet I'd get drunk. I wasn't even lying to you. Drunks and car salesmen. The thing that they don't have in common is a car salesman knows when he's lying to you, right? Alcoholics have no earthly idea of my variety anyway. I would say to you, baby, I told you, I will not drink on our wedding day. <laughs> Sorry, I got away on me, you know what I mean? I just, it just got away on me. <laughs> so humiliating. I mean, it's just... Immor incomprehensible sometimes. It means we don't understand it. Demoralized means that, that all of your morals have been plucked away from you. Everything in which I believed would be gone because of the powerless nature, my addiction, if you want, want to alcohol. This is something that always amazes me, by the way, about our fellowship. I, every once in a while I hear somebody introduce themselves as an alcohol addict, and I don't want to start a great big controversy here, but it confuses me because Dr. Silkworth said we're addicted to alcohol. So that makes us alcohol addict addicts. That's from the Department of Redundancy Department. So, yeah, of course we're addicted. See, when you're powerless over alcohol, you're powerless over a bunch of stuff because that, that second piece there is just, that's exactly right. My life is unmanageable. And you know, the, the longer I'm sober and the more crazy this thing becomes, I start to ask questions. I want to know. So my sponsor's an alcoholic. What the hell does he know? I go to a counselor. And I say, give it to me straight. What exactly is wrong with me? And he said, you have a biochemical disorder centering in the hypothalamic information control center of your brain. 
and this is made worse by your liver's inability to metabolize alcohol without producing acid aldehyde, which, mixed with dopamine, produces tetrahydroisoquinoline, a deadly combination given your narcissistic egocentric core, which is driven at times by feelings of omnipotence which tend to their own integrity despite the cognitive dissonance and stimulus augmentation. So what the hell does that mean? He said, your drinker is broke. Go to Alcoholics Anonymous. They're the only people that can help people like you, you see? Did you want something exotic wrong with you or something? I mean, if I could pick a disease, I'd pick this one. You know, when I look at the disease, I mean, if there's a big bag of diseases and they said, take one, I think I'd take alcoholism. Well, I mean, what a penalty. You have to travel all over the world and meet new people and eat pie. <laughs> Crap. Meet some of the most intelligent, loving, fun-loving idiots in the face of the earth. Fly into an airport in Cincinnati and you're actually in Kentucky, but what the hell do you know? Drive you back and forth across the bridge, take you to a meeting where people ignore you, bring you back to... Kentucky, drop you off in a Holiday Inn that's called Cincinnati. So, what am I really trying to say here? Uh, <laughs> I'm an alcoholic because when I drink, I can't control the amount I drink. So, if, if this is a big, big news flash to you newcomers. You see, what happens to me is, and the big lie to me, I could not, when I didn't drink, say that I craved alcohol. Now, I've heard some other people say they craved alcohol. I've also say, heard other people say that they didn't try to drink normally. And believe me, they did what they did. I'm just rela relating to you my little experience here. But when I wasn't drinking, I never craved alcohol. Now, I was obsessed with the idea of not getting drunk, of not going out and doing that again. I mean, I'd made the promises and the pledge and all that stuff. But I wasn't craving it. Now, they tell me there's a stage where your body takes over and you actually do start to crave. But let me tell you guys, you new ones, you younger ones especially, that what happened to me repeatedly was that when I would take the first drink, then the craving would begin. It was amazing. Sometimes it wasn't the first, it might be the ninth. I was always trying to figure out when does that set in. Like we should do research, really. When does that set in? But it's a hellish disease because it's never the same. Sometimes it's two drinks. Sometimes it's you can't get drunk at all. I mean, sometimes it never cuts in. And so you're drinking, waiting for it to happen, but not wanting it to happen. And, oh, my God, it's complicated. And so you end up drunk that day again. <laughs> I wish I had money for every time I went over there to say, like, I'm just going to have a cup. And the phenomenon of craving would start. And suddenly things that mattered so much to me did not matter to me anymore. If you understand what I'm talking about, you're probably in the right place. I can tell you that if you don't deal with that now, you will deal with that or it will deal with you. See, it's a disease that always gets worse. It never gets better. Our big book tells us in sharing with newcomers to tell them the deadly nature of this disorder. My God, do I understand that. I have seen so many die from this disorder. And screwy part of it is is that step one is precisely what's wrong with we and then step two is the only way that someone like me can ever get any help and it is oh god it's a terrible thing when you come like i came with two bagfuls of anger against god you know uh, resentment and they said you know you have to come to believe that a power greater than yourself will restore you to sanity well first of all i said how do you know i'm insane <laughs> Dwayne said, trust us on that one. <laughs> you know, insanity is nothing more than not being whole, not being able to be all in one place all at one time. I was insane all my life. I just didn't understand that alcohol didn't induce the insanity. It contributed 
to my survival in many ways, because I don't think from 11 until the time I stopped, I could have stayed on board. The pressure of sobriety for me, oh my God, you know what I'm saying? And I didn't have the simple tools that they gave me here in Alcoholics Anonymous, a little kit of tools, stuff like whatever, you know. I'd say, but no, no, no. And they say, yeah, so what? What do you mean, so what? Everything's my business. I'm controlling the earth. You know? It, it, you know what? Relax. Doesn't matter. In a hundred years, will this matter? And, you know, little simple things. Now, I'm not saying my parents didn't try and teach me those things. I think they did. I just couldn't hear. But when I was humiliated and beaten down and punched around to a place where I was teachable, then I got to Alcoholics Anonymous and I started to hear the music of sobriety, which is really kind of a neat thing. But anyway, so here's the, here's the, 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 the pickle. I'm dying. They've now convinced me I have this, you know, genetic disorder centering in the hypothalamic information control center. <laughs> On the other hand, the only thing I can do is pray to a God I don't believe in and I know doesn't like me anyway. And if I don't do that, they say, I'm going to die. <laughs> Thank you for sharing, you old farts. <laughs> and they just give it to you like that. There is nothing here for you but a spiritual solution. I say, well, I'm not believing in God. They said, well, then believe in this. You drink and I'll bust every bone in your body. <laughs> Did you get this kind of love? Because that's what it is. You know, craphead is a term of endearment in Alcoholics Anonymous. It is. My sponsor said to me, you drink, I'll bust every bone in your body. He said, I don't want you to get hurt by strangers. And I know that if you're going to drink, <laughs> you are certainly going to get hurt. And I don't want it out of control. So I'll just bust you up kind of like lovingly. <laughs> Start wondering, what is wrong with these people? You know, like words like exhibitionist come through your mind. You know, egomaniac, megalomaniac, sycophant, idiots. I just, I hated everything and everybody in Alcoholics Anonymous for the first little while. So if you're feeling like that tonight, trust me when I tell you this, that's probably just your body trying to get you the hell out of here before something stupid happens, like you stop drinking. <laughs> the only thing you need to understand is, is that you don't understand. See, if, if, it's not what you don't know that's killing you. It's what you don't know you don't know. That's what's killing. And you come back and I'll give you more of that later. I mean, this is the kind of visceral stuff you can hang on to when you're shaking. Remember when Sheila was talking, she said that her sponsor said, can you believe that I believe that you'll stay sober? That's all I had. I mean, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous with two pockets full of Valium. I was just afraid of flying off the earth. I remember one night saying to my sponsor, I just, I'm different. You guys don't understand. All you are is alcoholics. I've got complications. <laughs> he said, what are they? I said, well, sometimes, Dwayne. I just feel like I'm going to explode. He said, like, are you going to explode now? <laughs> no, if I'm going to explode now. Well, do you think you'll explode by, say, 11 o'clock tonight? Do you think you would explode? <laughs> Dwayne, I don't know if I'll explode by 11 o'clock tonight. And he said, well, then... What about midnight? Do you think? I said, Dwayne, I don't know when I'm going to explode, but talking to you makes me want to explode. That's her bloody shirt. He said, listen, this is how simple this is. We live one day at a time. If you're not going to explode before midnight, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Swear to God, got rid of the Valium, never had it in my pockets again. I don't know, it just made sense to me. It's that simple. If you're not going to go crazy before midnight, relax. We only live... 24 hours. You know, that's all I've ever been able to handle anyway. You ever say that to an earth person, by the way? Some of these normal people say, 
let me share with you a gem from Alcoholics Anonymous, okay? Are you ready? <laughs> One day at a time. And they go... <laughs> they don't get it. They only live one day at a time. They didn't know you could live in Technicolor in four different planets of the city. They, they got little kind of skinny consciousness. With, everything's in black and white. They don't get it. You know, like we live in parallel dimensions with four or five different conversations going at the same time with some people we haven't even met. They're just in there. <laughs> Why don't you shoot yourself? Why don't you jump off the bridge? I'm your friend. <laughs> so I said to Dwayne, I can't believe in God. He said, why not? And I said, because if I believe in God, I'd have to go to Africa as a missionary. He said, what would they do with an idiot like you in Africa? Sick as I was, I had to concede the point. That's a good point. We're so grandiose. I mean, we're worried about the problems of children starving. Our kids are at home with no dad, no mom. But we I mean, we're worried about world conditions. Why don't they do something about this stuff? It's got to be big or it would get on us. And so it's got to be out there, you know. See, if you can identify with that kind of thinking, you're probably in the right meeting plan. said to Dwayne, what do you do if you can't believe in God? He said, just believe in this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. Can you not see? Around you, everywhere, that there's people living like happy, healthy, normal lives, like right around you. Don't you believe them? I didn't know. You see, Dwayne was a lot older than I was. I think Dwayne was 13 years sober. In fact, I didn't believe. Do you believe anybody's 13 years? Like, wouldn't they break into flames or something <laughs> after that much? Dwayne had a dog. Like, he was old, but he had a dog that was like 105. And this is what we used to do Saturday night. And you've got a feature. I'm 23 years old. My life has ended. Attila the Hun has found out where I'm living. You like that one? I go to a meeting. He introduced me to a guy that beat his best friend to death with his fists and tells him where I live. Now the murderer knows where I live. Attila the Hun knows where I live. Cool. You know, let's phone a couple of psychopaths and get them over to kill my family as well. Man, for a guy that was trying to be secret, this whole, the lid was coming off. The Alcoholics Anonymous thing was blowing away for me. Anyway, he had this old dog and his name was Tinker. And Saturday night, the big thing was we'd go over to Dwayne's place and we'd sit around the rec room. And you'd come to the do door and you'd, and the dog would go, and then we go downstairs and Dwayne would say, okay, smile, Tinker. And all of these drunks, I mean, this dog would go, oh, man, people would fall down. And I think, uh, I've died and I'm in hell. This is, oh, next thing you know, they're going to break out bingo cards in an accordion. I'm down. Oh, and I can't get up. Oh, it was the worst reality for me. The guy had a brush cut. He had a Ford LTD. Everything I hated. I mean, I hate, he was Norwegian. Oh, my God, a Norwegian. My father-in-law was a Norwegian. He used to swear at me when I'd pick my wife up. And old guy would walk by me and he'd And I knew, I could tell by the look on his nasty face that it wasn't crazy. God sends me a Norwegian. Don't tell me God hasn't got a sense of humor and then look at this nose. So I said, Dwayne, what do you do? What do you do if you can't? 
Never mind won't, can't believe in God. Like I'm so screwed. And he said, all you got to do is believe in these people and then this other stuff will come. And so I did. He said, but you got to make a decision. You see, I don't think we get our arms around that for newcomers. A decision is like a decision. It's not I'm in Wednesday, out Friday, back Monday. It's a decision. Irrevocable. You make it. And you know what? It's not easy for alcoholics. I couldn't make a decision at any time anywhere. Like I would say I'm going here and go there. And so when they said make a decision to turn your life over and your will over, holy smokes. I didn't even have a will. I didn't even have a lawyer. You know, how was I going to turn all of this over? Oh, my God, it's too much. I might as well get drunk. You know, I'll go get drunk. I'll kill you. So you got a kind of a crazy period, about 90 days anywhere, where they just say, keep bringing your body to a meeting, and eventually your mind will show up. I mean, I'm listening to people talk, and at the same time, I'm running a parallel conversation, denial of everything they're saying. If they were in jail, I wasn't. You know, it was amazing after I'd been sober six or seven months, how many things I'd done that I had completely denied doing. See what I'm saying? And I would go to these meetings, and some of the people that I was drinking with were now sober. Oh, so I'm figuring, well, they've got to be still drinking because I just saw them drinking. Because there's no time when you're a drunk. Everything's Friday. <laughs> and then Monday, because you can't show up Monday, so it's got to be Friday again. Yeah. I made this decision almost against my own volition. I'd like to stand here and tell you that I made a decision to stop drinking, that I called Alcoholics Anonymous. That didn't happen to me. Alcoholics Anonymous was sent to me by my sister. She sent me the Norwegian. He took me to this breakfast meeting. There was all these old people there. They were going up and down some stairs or steps or some damn thing. I didn't know what they were talking about. I told them I was very impressed. Very impressed. When newcomers tell you they're very impressed, it means they're going to take off on you as soon as the car leaves the parking lot. I love that meeting, I said. He said, really? I said, yeah, you guys have got something so great going here. If I was an alcoholic, this is where I'd come. I'm serious. And I told him if he needed money or any sort of radio promotion or anything, I'd be happy to help. I didn't have enough money for coffee, but big shot going to help alcoholics. Anonymous. I thought I'd kind of like conveniently excuse myself away from this bonehead, and then he came back and picked me up that night to go to another meeting, the Mustard Seeds meeting in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada. That's where I got sober. And it was an amazing thing, you know. At this meeting at night, there's a couple of women. Hookers, I figure, because... Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm so pure, right? And who else would ever be at a meeting of Al Alcoholics Anonymous except hookers? You'd never see nice girls. So when they said, does the newcomer have anything to say, you know, like they do, I said, oh, yeah, I got a question. You guys hookers? Oh, yeah. And uh, Ruth looked at me and she said, you know, I never was a hooker, but I would occasionally pick up an anemic little turd like you in a bar and take them home. And sometimes they got lucky. If I felt in a good mood, I thought, you. See, don't mess with these alcoholic women. See, they have a mind installed with the same sort of geometric deficiency that you do. They understand what's up. And 
I, I came out of that meeting, I was furious. I'd been humiliated. I said, Dwayne, I really don't want to go to any more meetings. You get that message? He said, get this message? Who cares what you want? <laughs> now, I know that this is a program where we're supposed to have free will and all that stuff. I hadn't read any of the literature, so he told me. This is a good one. He said, you know why this is called Alcoholics Anonymous? It's because we have people all over the city watching you. You couldn't make a move that we don't know what's So don't even think about drinking. Don't think about escaping. We're everywhere. That's sponsorship. He lied to me or I would have died. He told me the things I had to have. I mean, I said to him just recently, I got the most wonderful privilege. He called me up to where he lives in, and I went up there and was able to share my little talk, and I was doing some of this stuff. And after, we just sat and cried. And I said, you know, Dwayne, I, you have no earthly idea how indebted I am to you. And he said, you know what, you self-centered little dirt. He said, it wasn't about you. He said, I was in trouble during that period, and I had to hang on to somebody, and you were all I had. <laughs> That's why I got you for a sponsor now, Dick. The hell with him. <laughs> I don't get too elaborate in these people helping you. I kept thinking, what do they want? They don't want anything. They don't want to stay sober. That's why they're helping you. All they ask is that you give it away when you got it. It's so simple. Like, this is the first time it's a no-ticket deal. You know, all I want you to do is just do what I do. Give it away freely. And so I did it. Step three became the deal. I mean, I was at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. A guy named Wesley Parrish was sharing. Some of you people that have been around for a while will remember him. He was like four foot square, had a motor home and a lot of money, hated his guys, hated them. And he talked about his sponsor calling him a liar, and I hated his sponsor too. I just like, the people stood up and big standing ovation at the end of it. I hated them for liking him. I sat there. I'm not putting my hands together for you, you little... Floridian poop. I'm not doing anything for anybody, you know. It was day 89, by the way. I'm thinking the dog is dead. The car is going to burn. I'm going to share with Dwayne some of the things I wanted to our entire first 90 days. I'm going back drinking. And that little Wesley came over to me and he said, what is up with you? I said, you are. I'm so sick of all you guys and all your happiness and crap. And he said, you know what? Why don't you get out in the parking lot? Oh, this guy's like a hundred years old. I'll kill him in two minutes. I didn't know they didn't fight. They just go out there and shame you into surrender. See what I'm saying? I said a string of explicatives, as many dirty words as I could think of. I finished, caught my breath, and he said, some people can really swear and it sounds good. You don't. You know, you sound like some people look when they smoke. You just, sounds awkward. You should stop that. He said, let me just tell you something, Marty. He said, inside of you there has been something all of your life that you know is calling. And he said, the frustrations that you've had and your inability to reach that thing is some of what's to do with your being so angry all the time. But he said, let me tell you something. I've seen a lot of people come to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm going to tell you that you're going to make it. I can see it as clear as any. I don't think we do that enough with people. Sometimes when the nuts in my head were rattling, all I could hear was Wesley saying, you're going to make it. All I could hear was old Jeff Charlevoix, 31 years sober, say to me, you know what, young fellow, I think you are actually going to make it. And sometimes, you know, it's so easy to get all caught up in my stuff. I don't want to go over to somebody and say, you know, I like the way you're thinking. You're on your way. It's just too tough to do. 
And so I turned my life and my will over to the care of these guys. They were tough. They were tough. Only because my ego was so big that if they said anything, I was offended. I remember phoning Stan one time and saying, I am so depressed. <laughs> he said, really? What isn't going your way? <laughs> you know, they just seem to be able to push the exact right button and just crush you, you know. And it's like they got together in sponsor school and learned all the hit lines or something. But when you're when you're hanging out of your own skin, you got bare meat hanging all over the place. It's not hard to to, to offend somebody. I mean, alcoholics are people that can walk in a room if nobody says hi, they're offended. If too many people say hi, they say, "Oh my God, I can't take the pressure." There's no win. So, like, turning my life and my will over to the care of this God, he said, all that's about, Marty, is the absolute, undivisible, irrevocable decision to do the steps. That's all that is. You see, the first two steps are nothing more than being convinced. Being convinced, you're at step three. Step three says, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it start to finish. I'll do it like you tell me. And so I started doing that inventory. Is that a charmer? See, it? I can go into all kinds of psychological reasons why you got to do that, but I won't bore you with it because Dr. Bob said don't do that. But I can tell you that most of us have got really bad self-talk. I mean, if, if anybody talked to us the way we talked to us, we'd slap them right across the face. I mean, we trip, oh, you stupid idiot, you know? It's just everything. Everybody's watching every mistake that I'm making. And, oh, this is just yep, 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 yep. And that's got to change. And so I need to go back inside of myself for a period of time. And I don't know why we resist the four-step. Think about it. All you're going to think about is yourself. I mean, this should come so natural. <laughs> I got in there and they said, you know, here's here's the here's the kind of list of your problems. You're resentful. I said, I am not. And they said, and you have denials. Do not. <laughs> Who do I resent? Dwayne said, why don't you put the one person on the list you don't resent? It would be quicker. You hate everybody. I didn't know that. I thought because I tolerated people and put up with their crap and pretended to be nice that I was stuffing it. It was okay. It's not okay. Because I won't go there when I really need to. I'm the kind of a person that couldn't pick the phone up when somebody's died to say I'm so sorry that he's gone. I couldn't do it. I was all absorbed in myself. What will they say to me? And I mean, I don't know if I know the right words. And so I just trap all of that. I was the kind of a guy at an AA meeting that wanted to get my talk down before I shared. You know where that's at? <sighs> there is no talk. I mean, the thing about it is, is you just get up and you start talking from wherever you are. And sometimes you sound like an idiot. I mean, sometimes you sound really good because that's when God was talking that night. Sometimes you'll talk and say, hey, I wish I would have said that. Because it's so true. And you never know. You just open that mouth and you share from right where you live. I go to these meetings and I see the guys, you know, they get kind of slick three or four of them in a corner. And they approve or disapprove of the topic. <laughs> that topic. It's like being back in high school. And I watch them. They're so resilient, they can't even take the meeting in because they're so slick. You know what I'm saying? And then I watch the people that are really there, and they've got their guts on the table. And at the end of the meeting, they glow. The other guys go out of there the same way they came in. Herbert Spencer said, there is nothing that will keep a person in everlasting ignorance like contempt prior to investigation. If you will not open your ears and your heart to this thing, if you won't go through that step four, you will never know the nature of your wrongs. And you see, these are just simple little defects of character. There's so much right with you. I'm going to say there's probably 98, 99% of you is just right on. It's the 2% that really screws you up. It's like a bad golf swing. You know, it's really true. You guys, the slick guys from the meeting, by the way. Anyway. <laughs> you know, 
See, if you've got a golf swing, and all you got to be is five degrees off, and it doesn't mean a damn thing until you can really hit the ball. It doesn't mean a damn thing until it's really important, and off it goes into the wild blue yonder. Life is just like that. It's just amazing. And, you know, step four will help you get results. It'll help you get there, and, and there's so much resistance against this stuff. It's ridiculous. It's just, like, all built up. And I think the reason that I resisted it was because I knew the day I did my step four, I was in. That's the line, you know. Whenever I see somebody waffling on the fence, going back and forth, it's always right around that point. And it's almost like all of a sudden you say, okay, I surrender. I will put myself bare naked down on this piece of paper. I will write down any reoccurring bad feeling. That's all a resentment is. Just a reoccurring bad feeling. And he was right. And you know what? People get so hung up in how to do that. I just wrote a list of everybody I could think of. And then after that, I took that and I transferred it to a list. And I said, okay. What caused that? How does that affect me? What's the nature of wrong? This is not brain surgery, friends. And it was an amazing thing. I started to see this incredible thread in my life. How that always in my life, I would walk in a room and it was me who was on trial. See, nobody could ever do anything right because I thought that the incredible pressure you're putting on me to perform, I can't live up to it. <laughs> and they say, what was your name again? Like, <laughs> serious? Dwayne told me one time, Marty, when you walk in a room, you'll have no idea how little everyone cares. It's like 10,000 pounds came off my back. It was the most glorious release. And he said to me, you know, like the other thing you're having problem with is this thing called fear, not related to resentments. I mean fear. I said, well, I know a lot of things I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of falling. I'm afraid of making a fool of myself. I wrote all those things down. All of them went back to the same route. And then he said, let's talk about your sex life. I said, I'd love to because... You know, no, he said, your sex life, not, not what you'd like to have had happen. <laughs> Here's the interesting thing about that. That whole thing is designed to take me to a new place. It says, what were your experiences? What should you have done that would have been better? You know what I can stand here and tell you right now? I did some horrible, awful things to other human beings, and they did them to me. Sexually, I looked for approval in those relationships more than a relationship in the relationship. A bunch of stuff wrong. I mean, I physically, mouth-wise, intellectually ground other people down. And I'm so sorry for all of that. But you know, I can tell you standing here with God as my witness that I would not do any of that now. The book is right. I am reborn. I'm a different person. And what I did was I wrote down how I would like to be. See, it said it'll help me shame... Uh, form a sane idea of what my sex life is going to be. And I started to move toward that. Interesting thing about the human mind. If you don't have a goal, you'll repeat yesterday's goal over again. And anybody that's ever been in chronic alcoholism knows exactly what I'm talking about. It's the same goal every day. And so I need a better place to which to go. And so I started to get these ideas. I went through step five. I stood bare naked in front of another person. Not literally, but figuratively. I told them. Could you imagine that? Uh... <laughs> You know you're in trouble when you say to your wife, tonight's the night, right? And she goes, okay. But uh, <laughs> I'm joking. My wife finds me attractive. I mean, it's incredible. It's just incredible. These Elanons, they get so diluted after a period of time with so much pressure and stress that they actually love you. I can't explain. What a relief to know somebody else knew. And you see, that stuff now, I can tell you. I, I don't think that there's a whole bunch of my fifth step that I find particularly humiliating anymore. I just started to understand one thing about me, and you need to understand this about you. 
that everything that I did that was humiliating, I did because that was exactly not who I was. Every dirty thing that I did was because I was trying to push myself down, trying to, as my friend says, live up to the low standards I was setting for myself. It's about demoralizing yourself. It's about your 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 brain and your 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 lack of, of any sort of life force getting to a place where you can die. That's what that's about. And so, of course, you have a terrible fifth step if you're like me. But you might tell me your fifth step, and I'll say, that's it? Like, I've done fifth steps with other people. They finish, and I say, okay, bring it on. That's it. And I, I, want, I say, go join Girl Guides or something. Like, what the hell have you done? This is it? But I know my fifth step, maybe compared to some of yours, you would say, Marty, please, go back, drink some more, get a story. And so what what it's about is is that we were a certain way. We had a certain powerlessness that's common amongst us. The reason that we can recover as a group is is that the symptoms are consistent. The recovery is consistent. The program is consistent. That's what the wonderful message of Alcoholics Anonymous is, that we have this answer. Also, when you get through these steps, you'll find out another wonderful truth. And this took me 20 Two years to discover this. Please don't be as stupid and slow as I was, but the truth of the matter is is that I can't fix Marty. I tried all the behavior modification and studied all the books and did all the intellectual stuff, and every time I'd come up empty. February the 6th, last year, I was with Dick. I was in Chicago. I was at an AA convention. I'd been plagued by a character defect driving me nuts. 30 or more years I've had this character defect. It just drives me nuts. I can't stop. That night it was removed. I can't explain that to you. I was at a meeting the other night. They said, I've still got all my character defects. I'm telling you, I don't have that one. I don't argue with your program. I'm just telling you something happened with that one. Something happened with the drinking. It's gone. I don't want to drink. I don't look at people drinking and think, oh, I wish I could drink. I don't want to drink. I don't want to be in their stinky, pissy bars. They stink. I don't want to be like, you know what I love about you, you know. <laughs> I don't want to do that stuff. I have no interest in any of that stuff. Put a bullet in my head, but don't make me go back. It's been removed. It seemed to me that when I became so crushed, so humiliated, so willing to let it go, God said, that's enough then. Don't have it anymore. Wow. What a program. That may not happen to you. I don't know. I'm not talking again about how you should work your program. I'm telling you about how I was working mine. That happened. I've made this list of people that I had to make amends to. You know? That's an interesting concept, going and cleaning it up because I owe it to them to tell them who the real fool was. Some people don't accept your amends. Get ready for that if you're new. Don't do it too quick. Make sure you have your sponsor's understanding and blessing before you go out there and be in this kind of a state of mind. I'm doing this because it's the right thing for me to do. How they accept it is up to them. And then I continue daily trying to find out where I'm selfish and uh, inconsiderate. That's a good one for me. It's not that I'm trying to hurt you, it's just that you got in the way and I was trying to build myself up. <laughs> it's screwy, isn't it? Seeking through prayer and not medication for the newcomers, seeking through prayer and meditation. There was a alcoholic cab driver in Kentucky who had picked up a preacher and they were driving down the road and got into an accident and they both got killed and they ended up at the pearly gates. And, uh, man, this big party starts. And they grab the cab driver and start taking him to this mansion 
in this beautiful car and giving him this beautiful rings and rubs him. The preacher says, whoa, stop. He says, there's a mistake here. Like, I'm the preacher. And, and St. Peter said, I don't understand. He said, I'm the guy that gave my whole life to God. Peter said, I don't understand what you're getting at. He said, well, wouldn't I be the one getting the big mansion instead of this little junk place I'm going to live in? Peter said, I don't See, listen, you need to understand something about God. See, everything with God is about results. All right? So when you're preaching, half of the people were sleeping. When this guy drove, everybody prayed. <laughs> now, here's the point. It doesn't matter what you're doing if it's not working. Don't hang on, as Clancy says, to the rock, to the bottom of the bloody lake. If what you're doing is not working, if you're at that magical six, seven years of sobriety and all of a sudden you're stuck on the wall again and everybody looks alien and you're mad, do something different. Go this, I mean, try this one. Read your book. I know. Oh, I know. I kept thinking, oh, I know what's in that book. No, you don't. Because the AA fairy gets in there over a number of years and rewrites almost everything that's in there. And you will be hit with pertinent data, just in time data, for you to change your entire life. Just gonna close by saying what we're like now. I've got this girl named Shirley. We've been an item for 30 years. Had some trouble in our marriage, had lots of trouble in our marriage. She married a pig. Couldn't get enough of anything, couldn't see the good in her, never talked to her. I wish I could say when I was drinking. I'm talking sober. Had my life, she had her life. We made a bunch of money, put her in a nice cage. That's what it felt like. You got everything you want. What the hell do you want from me? Emotion? <clears throat> oh, yeah. Very successful. Problem is, that's not where this program is at. This thing's about what you're doing when you close the door in your house. And, you know, we had to get apart for about 17 months. And I was down in Florida, living in Florida. And I used to pray this self-centered prayer. I used to say, God, send me a woman that I could love. He did. He sent me my wife back. Man, I remember she got off an airplane and I saw this absolutely gorgeous woman woman coming toward me. And I thought, oh, man, what I'd give to... And my God, it's my wife. And it was like I had brand new eyeballs. That night we went and bought it. She bought... It was my AA birthday. And she bought a big 26 of chocolate. Have you ever seen those things? And we went to bed. <laughs> looked like we'd messed ourselves. It was everywhere. It was in the, our hair, the walls. Man, this is what I want for a relationship. You know, this is... Woo! Bill Wilson said it better than anybody ever said it. He said he woke in the hospital, nothing had changed, and everything was different. And you see, that's about this thing called spiritual awakening that will happen to you wherever you are when you start to do the things in this program that they ask us to do. I just appeal to you. To take a second look. My old friend Donnie N. from Minneapolis, well, actually Minnesota, says this is not a second chance at life. This is a chance at a second life. And so I entered back into my family's lives. My kids were teenagers. They didn't know what I was doing home. I was sort of like Uncle Bob. I'd come in, throw some money around, take off in another plane. And I settled into their lives. And I got to know them. You know, my oldest son is six months longer sober than I am. He's 24 years old. He's never had a drink. Can't explain that to you. Didn't ask him not to. Just said to me one day, he said, 
You know, if I ever think about getting a box of beer, I think about drinking them all. What do you think my problem might be, Dad? I never had that kind of intuition. I have a middle son. I think he's messed around a little bit with booze. Maybe, maybe not. Won't tell me. He's so much like me. We just, you know what I'm saying? That kind of relationship. Man, I love that guy. Creative, you know, full of life. Name is Chad. He was born on my AA birthday. One year to the day. Still believes that I changed my AA birthday so I could coincide with him. Like, self-centered? Maybe. <laughs> God sent us a daughter named Lee. And I, you know, I used to get up at these podiums and I would talk about these kids. And anyway, on her 16th birthday, she went and bought a 26 of vodka. Drank it all herself. Down the basement. Absolutely got Just comatose drunk. And uh, started smoking and doing all the stuff. And here's what you guys gave me, okay? Instead of flipping out, instead of doing all that stuff, I said to myself, like right at that stage, if somebody could have snapped me out of where I was, just sent me to a different place with some different thinking, I think I might have been able to get a view to try and get some help. And I did that because of you, because of what you've taught me, I've been able to have this great life. It's almost like I'm afraid the people that own our house are going to come home. You know what I'm saying? It's a fantastic life. And I was able to take her and her 1,500-pound horse and send them to a boarding school together. Girls only. She came home 50 pounds overweight with her head shaved bald. <laughs> Not talking. And I thought, yeah, that worked. <laughs> Pretty much how I would have handled it, yes. But here's the rest of the story. You see, she says to me one night, she's sitting at a kitchen table, and she's just pissed at everything. She says, take me to a meeting of alcoholics. No. I said, what for? And she says, I want to see one. So I go there, and every teenager on earth shows up at this meeting. I can't explain how God works. I just know that he just sometimes does these things. Every kid in the program, all these people are talking like, so anyway, so like I got like loaded, and I... Like, <laughs> And so, so I'm like wasted and like not tight, but like wasted. And anyway, I go, oh man. And we come out of the meeting and, and she's inspired. Wow. <laughs> the magic of AA. You don't have to understand the English. You just have to let your belly take it in. You see, there's a spiritual level just way beyond what the human mind can interpret. Never mind if you think it's a good meeting. Check your belly when you come up. You'll find out that you're changed in a better way for once and forever. Anyway, she came out of there and she said, you know, uh, I'm not sure I want to go to the meetings, but I'm pretty sure that I know some people that should be at those meetings. <laughs> I think that's admission. I'm not an Elanon. How the hell do I know? She's never drank. It's been a few years. She's 20 years old. She just bought her own home. Wow. Got a boyfriend with juvenile diabetes. He can't drink at all. Their lifestyle is goofy. They come and spend like Saturday nights with us watching movies. I keep saying, like, don't you have somebody to go beat up or something like that? What the hell are you doing? I can't explain that. When I was listening to Sheila talk about her dad, I could just hear Lee. You know, I'm starting to hear love out of Lee. Like, she's starting to say stuff. Uh, <laughs> how, would you, how would you ever get from where I was to here? You see what I'm saying? I know that it seems hopeless to you guys, that you don't know what on earth you're going to do. We know. None of us knew how to get from here to there. We didn't know. You didn't know the people that were going to come and the special angel that would show up at a meeting or the idiot that just told your story at the right time or the time you're going to go drink and somebody just showed you. You don't know. So don't worry about it. What you do today until midnight tonight, man, what is that? Hour and 45 minutes? Don't drink. 
and stay in this time zone. No cheating. <laughs> Way ahead of you guys. Well, it'd be midnight in Newfoundland, wouldn't it? <laughs> I'm just going to close with something that I learned that I think says it all. There was a guy that climbed the Himalayan mountains. His name was W.W. W. Murray. I don't know a lot about him, but he was talking about decision, commitment. You see, the reason people die here is, is that they won't commit to the recovery long enough to gain the recovery. Like they're in if it'll fix me right away, but as soon as it starts to ache, I'm going back out. Won't work. Aching's good. I know that's hard to believe right now because everything we drank about was not aching, right? And yet, why did we play that country music? <laughs> anyway, here's what he said. He said, until one is committed, there is hesitation. Always ineffectiveness. He says that in all acts of intent and creation, there is a fundamental truth, the ignorance of which has killed countless splendid ideas and plans. And that truth is just this. Now listen. That the moment one commits, then providence moves. And from that decision streams a, a virtual stream of circumstances and people and happenings of which that person would never have dreamt. And so he said, whatever you dream you can do, and whatever you do, just begin it because boldness has magic and power and genius in it. We're glad you're with us. Don't die. Stay home. This is the easier, softer way. Good night. Thank you.